Hey, I'm Luis. And I'm Dakota. Welcome to the PhDs of Company, a podcast about keeping each other company with conversations about the interplay of comedy and mental health. And if you're excited about being our pupil, you can stay up to date with our episodes by following our Instagram account at PhDOC Podcast and our website at anchor.fm slash PhDOC Podcast. In this episode, Dakota and I will talk about our experience as young performers. And then we will talk about some thoughts surrounding the concepts of a book we read together called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Casey and a short story called Welcome to Holland by Emily Kingsley. And finally, we'll leave you with something to remember. Hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, everybody. How you doing? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) That cannot be the way we greet people into this episode. (laughs) Oh, it's for sure got to be. That's what the people want. It's the good content. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, hey, um, we are both in places that are not our homes. Mm. Uh, (laughs) mm, Yes. Mm, That's true. (laughs) <laughs> and uh in episode five we we're we're in it um i'm really excited about this one for the fact that we this is the first one where uh where we have done work that has has lasted several weeks before the episode uh we talked about yeah. reading a book together uh like when we were when we were talking about the concept of the podcast we were like let's read books together and discuss them and we picked this book and it took me significantly longer to read it than it took you (laughs) (laughs) well no i had already read it like two years ago. true 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 yeah uh but but this one has been i think the, the the longest work put in um which has been cool yeah well but but before we before we get all all serial uh yeah what what if i what if i asked you a question or do you want to ask me the question can i ask you first and then you ask me okay okay ready (laughs) (laughs) on the count of three (laughs) i'm nervous (laughs) dakota what was your first experience performing in front of people Ooh, lots of childhood memories popping back up in my head right now uh uh, I I guess the first one would be, I don't. I'm wondering if uh, other people would would first jump to this, but I'm I'm immediately thinking of a childhood play. Okay. I don't really. There was one play I was in that I think was like the nativity scene or or something. I don't. I don't. Were you baby Jesus? One. No, but I was. I was like too young to actually understand what was happening there, so I don't. I don't remember that one. Oh, so you were like sheep number four or something like that? Yeah, probably. Or like or a tree. Uh, <laughs> but I was, I do remember uh, the play in fifth grade. Uh, okay. Which was, 
it was The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Whoa. Uh, and I uh, was not a significant character in the sense of, of plot line, but I was I was the uh, the comic relief. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, but like I I'm, uh, I was the cat. Do you if do you remember the story? I will not lie to you. Very I read well. this book when I was a child. I had like the kids version yeah. of the book. Uh, the, what's it called? The great great illustrations. I have no or, idea. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? There was like a yeah, there was like a company that did all these and like the children version, the abridged. I had version. that, and 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 I never read the actual, <laughs> the actual book. Well, there's a character where, or there's a point where Tom is he's painting a fence. Yep. And his friends come by. For the first character, I was I was actually two characters in this play. If that, if you know, wow, that's impressive. Um, Very. So so first, I was a I was a human. Uh, where I was one of the one of the friends that comes over and Tom kind of tricks me into painting the yes. fence for like you know a nickel or something, um, and then later Tom for some reason I can't really remember the story either but he has he has this he f- stumbles upon this concoction uh, this syrup liqueur mm-hmm. uh, that is like I don't it's I don't know whose house it was at. But he feeds it to the cat with a spoon. Okay. Uh, and I played the cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so my role was to come out and curiously walk up to Tom, <laughs> lick his spoon, and then freak out. <laughs> so so I, uh, I remember the painstaking process of um, my, my parents were like, you you know we don't you're not going to just be like a regular cat we're not going to just paint whiskers on you you need like an actual costume and so oh, we yeah. drove around to playhouses uh and and like rented a it was actually a wolf suit okay uh it was like a big furry wolf suit and <laughs> i wore that to be the cat and i flipped out on stage and i like you know i i landed it was it was all it was incredible physical comedy yeah, i knew you were gonna say that it was just incredible physical <laughs> comedy uh, just, just woe is up me, on my back cat dead i i jumped around i ended up on my back and i kicked my arms and legs in the air uh in in a, a very slapstick way yes dude and and then i scurried off the stage and there it began my long career to being a podcaster <laughs> i'll say if if there's anything that I laugh at more that you do, it is it is your physical comedy. <laughs> Yo, <laughs> the idea of curegging. Do you remember curegging? <laughs> to to give yeah, the listener to give it? the listeners context, Dakota and I went and got coffee one day in the chaplain's office at wake forest university and we both were severely concerned at the grumbles and eerie noises that came from the keurig and so we we began we began this joke where uh 
where whenever we were overcome with emotion, we would Keurig. So we would (laughs) put liquid in our mouths, hold it there, grumble. So do some form of like... <laughs> and then we would smack ourselves atop the head, bend over, and then proceed to spew liquid out of our mouths to sound like the cure. We go. That's right. Oh. Yeah. And I'm sure those noises are absolutely terrible to hear over any form that you're listening on. <laughs> but envisioning us hunching our bodies such that we looked like a cure. And and it was the it was the funniest thing. It was kind of similar. It was the same vein of like uh, planking, <laughs> like you know, like when you when back in like 2010, when like everyone was posting pictures of themselves like laying flatly on random objects yeah. and saying plank challenge. This was the curig. We were curigging. <laughs> so add that to our dictionary, Luis. Of, yes, our our uh, PhDOC lexicon words curigging. <laughs> uh, I will develop that lexicon soon. Now we have five episodes worth of of uh, notable terms that we will use in our in our language in this episode. Can I can we're, I ask we're you? We're on the brink of changing culture. We are. Can I ask you about about your your first performance? So obviously now and then you were performative in action and relationship. That's just what you do normally. Have you always been that way, even as a child? Uh, Were you always kind of exuberant and and performative in nature? Uh, I don't, I honestly, I don't know. I don't, uh, I want to say that I, I definitely liked laughing and playing and, and being imaginative. I don't, I don't remember being very physical until really until later like i said in a previous episode about like when i saw dane cook doing that Mm -hmm. i i think i was like okay if a comedian can can like jump around the stage and incorporate his body language into the into what he's saying Mm. because a lot of the time some of the things that dane cook's saying is actually not that it's not as funny it's more that he's true his face is funny like his face is telling you that that thing is not just mundane. It's kind of, uh, uh, it reminds me similar to <laughs> Chris D'Elia. That, that yeah. man has exceptional physical comedy. His, his joke about hunting deer. Go, if you're listening to this right now, pause this, go to YouTube, click in, <laughs> type in Chris D'Elia hunting and just his, his stature in, in, uh, anthropomorphizing yeah. a deer, <laughs> uh, just a doe, is is yeah. is pristine. It's amazing, and so not to not to, uh, like be boastful for your physical comedy, Dakota. But I I do think that something I admire is the com the the confidence at which you approach your physical comedy in relationship. I I would say that I have had to practice at it. Uh, so a question that I have for you is when you were playing the cat, did you, did you rehearse or did you just off the cuff? I, I rehearsed, I rehearsed in rehearsal to a minimal degree, but I, 
I, I don't think I, uh, <clears throat> I think I was actually nervous about doing that. I don't think I was doing it like, oh, this is going to be so good. I was thinking, I think at that time I was at the point of childhood where I was discovering, uh, will this be embarrassing or funny? Mm, that is the question I ask myself every day in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, except now I just, uh, I'm more confident in doing it and it, I, it, if I get it uh, embarrassed, I could brush it off more easily than I can when I was 11. Jeez, dude, I can't, man. I'm not going to lie to you when I say I struggle so hard at getting the courage to say the joke I want to say. <laughs> I need to be I need to be reassured that I think it's really funny. And when it doesn't land, oh, it just yeah. it ruins yeah. me, man. It ruins me. I I I, I definitely that. have some self confidence yeah. issue in that in in my in my in my yeah. humor. Yeah. Well, okay. So, well, now I'm curious what 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 was your first performance that you remember? So I was also in a fifth grade play. However, my first experience performing when you when we decided to do this question, the thing that popped into my head was actually um, a second grade presentation. So we were supposed to come up with we were doing. Uh, a social studies section on maps and reading maps and so we were doing scale and map legends and cardinal directions and cartography and there's that kind of thing in general and so everybody was supposed to draw a map and like most kids did you know georgia or the united states uh or or the world and yeah. i i <laughs> i i came up with a fantasy world <laughs> Let's go. where there was like viking village and top hat town and <laughs> just just dude this has got to be adapted into something and, and i remember coming up with this whole world and the thing was, I was so scared because I... I Top hat town. <laughs> Dude, I'm envisioning like a bunch of Brits with tall top hats. Dude, and, and just like everyone's got it, even babies. I, like, this is... I can, I can tell you with, without, without a doubt, this is where my... This is where a lot of my deep-seated uh, <laughs> uh, personal issues stemmed. I remember... I remember uh painstakingly making this poster with crayons the night before so this is obviously where my procrastination started uh i remember (laughs) staying awake till an ungodly hour as a second grader and my mom my mom stayed up with me and did the poster with me because she was concerned at how late her second grade child was (laughs) was doing his work yeah uh Dude, big shout out to moms and dads who did that. My mine did that as well. They made me work hard. And so the first day of presentations went by, and I wasn't ready. My poster, my poster was half done. I brought it into school half done, and I didn't have a presentation ready. And so I just didn't raise my hand to do it, and my name never got called. So then I, <laughs> so then I, I got, I went back Whoa. home and finished it, and. I remember. I remember. <laughs> Back in the day when, like, it would take two days to go through the whole class. And uh, I remember rehearsing every single line to the word of how I was going to present 
my poster. And so the first time I performed was yeah. my second grade poster performance of my map. And I it was it was the first time I felt like a comedian. If I'm being honest, it was the first time I felt like a comedian. People were people were laughing and I was talking at I was talking at a <laughs> hundred words per second. I was just it it, it yeah. went by so fast. And to give you some perspective as to what second grade Luis was like, I I was a yeah. I was a really shy, chubby kid. <laughs> I was just super shy. Um, I don't know when the severe flip happened in my extroversion, uh, but yeah. but if you talk to I I mean I remember talking to my elementary school teachers as a high schooler, and they always recount how quiet I was. Um, and so there was a lot of nervous energy in my first performance and there was a lot of lack of self-confidence and unpreparedness, but there was definitely the, do you remember when we discussed the quote from Sarah Silverman that was, uh, every comedian at some point in childhood, uh, discovers that they need to be funny to survive or something along those lines. Yeah. That's what that quote was. Uh, that resonated with me exceptionally because wow. I never thought I was a funny person, but I knew that if I used humor as a tool uh, in my performances, presentations, social interactions, interviews, meetings, I knew that I could approach my lack of security and unpreparedness i could i could almost mask it with yeah. humor and faux confidence were you a uh, class clown I, i'm gonna say I, I was not a class clown and if there's a listener out there yeah. that wants to combat that i would i would really love i would really <laughs> love to hear it uh, and yeah. i i've said this before on this podcast and i'll say it again uh, I, I was immediately surrounded by best friends who were significantly funnier than I was. Oh, I'm getting a, I'm getting a call actually. Uh, it's an unknown number from Lilburn, Georgia. <laughs> hey, hey, welcome to the podcast. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that, uh, Luis was a total class clown. He won the superlative in high school. I, I did not win that superlative in high school. I did not. <laughs> uh, I, I I always wanted to be funny and I would yeah. say that my immediate group of friends had a very distinct style of humor that is all the same when people who yeah. when people who come from outside of that environment so when our college friends meet our high school friends or when you know significant others of other circles yeah. come and they there's definitely some immediate uh confusion about the way that we interact because it's so niche and goofy yeah and i would say yeah. that if if there's anything it's that so good, describes though. my humor it would be goofy dude i i uh i was scared to be a class clown i didn't want people to think that's what i was because i was too nervous about being a good student man <laughs> i i always knew i didn't want the teacher to think i was a like an insubordinate uh child i always wanted to be the class clown me too though there's such 
<laughs> I, for lack of a better word, there's such power. <laughs> <laughs> raw power <laughs> in just because it's true it's like you wield you wield your humor like a like a sword where you yeah. you can just slice through uh <laughs> the seriousness of anything um with just one witty comment a class clown can break down the the authority of somebody who's trying to dictate what's happening in a in, in, in just an educator trying to dictate over their classroom, and and that is yeah. that is some that is some insanity. And honestly, we'll get to that in the book we're going to talk about. But but also rest in peace, Top Hat Town. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I do I do love thinking back to the time when I was a a kid, and just how insecure I was. Because that kid is very present in the person that I am right now, despite the outwardness of who Luis is now. Hello, pupils. Our cohort of PhD candidates is ever growing. And we want to celebrate the newest accepted candidates of the Comedy Counseling Community College. Welcome to, drumroll please, <laughs> Lily Morgan, Andrew Fultz, and Collins Arp uh, are three newest members who have embarked on the journey of becoming good company. Congratulations to these three outstanding candidates. Yes. We had a lot of fun reading through their applications. They were fantastic. They were so funny. <laughs> we're we're gonna have to we're gonna share at some point some of these uh, Oh my gosh. How funny these are. Uh probably on Instagram. It, it, you know, funny but also meaningful and heartfelt. Uh, really impressive quote unquote resumes. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, if you're listening and you're thinking, well, what is that? Well, you, you could be good company too. Uh, if you're interested in receiving an application, please DM us your favorite picture of Steve Martin via Instagram, text, uh, snail mail, preferred email address. Uh, and then upon receiving your interest, we'll send you a formal application and further instructions for admission. Fantastic. The admissions board is anxiously awaiting your applications. Okay. Hello, pupils. Welcome on back to the episode. <laughs> yeah, like, we, we, every, every segment we need to just start with just... Hey, what's hey, up? how you do? It's always the worst part, though, because there's no good way of of being like of being. Uh, this is what we're about to talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what we're about to talk about, everybody, we we Dakota brought up a book that he thought would be really interesting to read, called "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest" by Ken Kessie, and. <laughs> <laughs> is it? I, it is. There's some debate is, on the internet. 
<laughs> is it Keezy? It's not. It can't be Keezy. Keezy? It's, it could, so it's either Keezy, Keezy, or Kessie. And I think Kessie. it's Kessie. And Kessie. the book, the book, it, to give the, the listener a synopsis without giving you any spoilers, even though this book slash movie has, has been out for forever. Years. And also, I don't know if you guys will actually read it. <laughs> I don't but, want to spoil the Iliad or anything, but <laughs> but for the sake of it, we'll we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about narrative points. We'll talk about we'll talk about perhaps excerpts that don't necessarily need to deal with big plot points. Uh, and to give you a quick synopsis, the book is about the patients at a psychiatric ward and a new patient. Uh, enters the mix and stirs the pot on the authority that is currently uh, a system at the psychiatric ward and for lack of a better you know word uh, induces a, a rebellion incites instigates a a rebellion uh, and so that yeah. is essentially the the beginning of the conflict of the book um However, uh, we thought that it was a it was a great book to read in terms of our ability to talk about some of the points, uh, quotes, and symbolism, and and so that's really where we're going to be. the The meat of our conversation will be there, uh, rather than uh, facts or or commentary on. Uh, psychiatric illness yeah well um yeah i'd love to start by um talking about one of the biggest themes of the book um which is actually brought about by uh experiences by both the author and the director of the movie um mm. the author uh ken kesey 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 he uh <laughs> <laughs> so he he had uh, an interest in this idea of diving into the world of somebody who's in a psychiatric ward because he had an experience um, as a participant in a CIA-run LSD experiment um, where he, mm. he took it and had to uh, – I'm not quite sure. I, I assume that he had to – either write a journal entry about it or, or maybe they observed him while he was on it. Um, but he had this experience of uh, feeling like he was out of his mind. Like he, the, that inanimate objects and in the world around him was alive. And so he, I think this is where he drew inspiration, but it was difficult to make into a movie because the, because it was a controversial idea of mm -hmm. this yeah. is i mean we're talking 1970s it was hard to find a director who would film uh who would film this and so they found milos foreman who is czechoslovakian and i heard him in an interview saying that he felt he felt uh like this story related to him because he lived in uh czechoslovakia which was under communist rule uh by the soviet soviets for like 20 years so, hmm. so 
you've got this idea, you've got this, this author and director who are playing out this idea of a greater commentary in this of, uh, of systems. So, yes. uh, the, this whole, this whole idea is, is wrapped around, uh, systemic, uh, oppression or institutionalization. Um, and so I, I actually became interested in this book because, um, my favorite author of all time is John Steinbeck and he, he, his books cover, uh, a lot of like pre-industrialization. So mm-hmm. he's hitting like the late, you know, the late 19th century, early 20th century, which is a pretty untalked about era in, in history. Um, but this idea of once industrialization hits and you have all this new technology, you have all of this new, these new ideas on how to produce things. You've got America being put in this or establishing this system. Um, everything is converts into systems. You've got education system, you've got manufacturing, you've got the, uh, uh, Henry Ford doing the assembly line, um, prison system, etc. Mm-hmm. And so, with that in the context, you can look at this story and we can see how mental institutions became part of that system. And so the corruptibility of this is that there's this kind of uh, the, the, that mental institutions as a whole are just were kind of seen in this era, this like 1900s era of uh, if you have any sort of abnormality, you're just labeled and put in it. And it's just this, you're lumped in with this greater category. And so there's no nuance. Um, Mm. You don't have, there's no uh, distinction between mental health and mental illness. Therefore, uh, there's this, the creation of stigma of, okay, well, I know that people at mental institutions in the 1960s, they, you know, they had lobotomies and, electroconvulsion therapy and they they you know all wore straight jackets and were and had medicine and so that is really scary for someone in that time period um Mm -hmm. and so now we're trying to tread into this modern era of psychology where well counseling is is available and not every time that you uh experience like a shift in your continuum like you know, uh, of depression or whatever it is, it doesn't uh, warrant that you have to go to an institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. how, how do we, how do we carefully separate these things and, uh, and kind of destigmatize this uh, from the standpoint of, okay, well, mental health is important and it's also accessible and we can learn how to talk about it and we can learn how to establish a less systemic approach to it no i absolutely i absolutely understand uh something important i think we should note dakota and i to the listener is is that we are we we also need to tread lightly on our commentary about the content content and symbolism of the book in regards to mental illness yeah Uh, mainly because we we don't know and so and so we're not professionals exactly (laughs) that yeah that that and yet that and the fact that we're using the book 
and its themes as a platform to discuss how relatable these characters and uh, and plot points are to ourselves uh, and our mental health, uh, taking into the slices of mood disorders and personality disorders uh, and your comment about the continuum. It, I mean, the the nuances really where where the conversation is because we exemplify tidbits of uh what would be dsm diagnosable in everyday life and so what what we're trying to do through this conversation is not diminish the reality of mental illness or uh dissociate uh or or isolate uh, those who experience mental illness Uh, what we're trying to do instead is use the story and the characters and themes as an opportunity to better understand and acknowledge our own mental health is that is yeah. that a good is that a good yeah. way to say it yeah uh, so Great let's distinction. so let's start with discussing the the characters uh loosely i think the two that we need to really talk about are mcmurphy and bromden and then we'll yeah. talk about kind of the the pockets of characters so McMurphy is the newest addition to the psych ward. Uh, he is this burly, confident, quote unquote, class clown of the psych ward. And yeah. Bromden, Chief Bromden, is the, the person who has been in the ward the longest. And he is this quiet, reserved individual who understands the system while mcmurphy is trying to break the system down and keeping in mind that mcmurphy is a korean war veteran yes uh he and he 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 was a part of a a team that escaped from a pow camp um what was what was uh chief's background before did it mention what where he where he came from i i i believe somewhere in there in there they talked about him coming from some res- some Native American reservation. Okay, yeah. Uh, that that's the whole idea of him being uh, the chief, and where the 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 titular quote of of the book comes from the song that his grandmother sang him, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, was this uh, Native American song? Um, but that's we're kind of in the weeds there on that. Um, so what what. I'd love to talk about is discussing the the types of of characters and just the language that's used uh, to discuss them. Uh-huh. And so, from so the 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 narrator of the book is Chief Bromden's thoughts. Uh, and so, at the very beginning, he discusses the the system slash classification at place in in the the hospital which is what they call it um and he discusses that there are two main groups there are the acutes and the chronics Uh, the acutes stay to themselves they're across the room from the chronics as he says and they're only in here uh for for a short time they know they know upon coming in that there is a release date and uh and uh 
then he says that he himself is what they consider a chronic. And in a really crass way, he discusses that the chronics are divided into three groups. There are the walkers, the wheelers, and the vegetables, um, which is just, oh, it's just like so, it's just so hard to read that. Uh, yeah. There, so he says there are, there are the walkers that, like me, that continue to live if you keep them fed. Uh, then there are the wheelers and the vegetables. And all of the chronics are just machines with flaws inside that can't be repaired. There are flaws that are born in and beat oh, beat in over over so many years. And well, and he talks about the combine, which is like his his perception of the hospital being this giant machine. Yeah, like like he's talking about like where he can see in in like a uh, almost like a level of psychosis and awareness. Like he like he talks about how he could see the cogs of the combine working mm. no i love that you brought that up so th the idea is since we're, we're discussing systems at place right so the system in the book is the hospital and the authority that the nurses who are the antagonists in the book the authority that the nurses have over the recovery of the patients yeah and so to kind of blast that out into a perspective for our listeners uh i would say there's a lot of parallel to the systems with our mental health being culture and greater society imposing the way that we talk about our mental health. Yeah. And so to, to bring up the, the concept of the fog, it's, uh, it's Bromden discussing that no, nobody complains about the fog uh, there's this concept of the fog in the hospital. And he goes, yeah. I don't know why. As as bad as it is, you can slip back in it and feel safe. You can slip back into the fog. And that's what McMurphy can't understand, us yeah. wanting to be safe. He keeps trying to drag us out of the fog, out in the open where we'd be easy to get at. And so in context of the book, McMurphy's trying to drag them out of the fog in order to form rebellion. But Bromden talks about the safety that the fog allows yeah and so in in and so man there's a lot of context here but there is safety in in being part of a system because yeah. there's there's no immediate uh there's there's no immediate damage however if you if you live in the system where you for me to give to give an example, if I were to continue to live in a system where uh, the I would say the Hispanic immigrant mentality is to uh, leave emotional availability outside of the parent-child relationship, yeah, um, I think the relationship with my father would be really strained. <laughs> and yeah. as of recently, it's been incredibly painful to try to break the system. To, to get out of the fog and out of my comfort in order to 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 create healing in that relationship, right? And, yeah. and it's not that that relationship was ever uh, damaged or unhealthy. It just seems that uh, it took a while for me to realize that the cogs were turning towards both of us not talking about some things that were necessarily emotional. Um, and so... And so as we discuss the book further, uh, 
just kind of relating these symbols of the system of the hospital to the systems of culture, uh, the fog being uh, our our lack of awareness of our own behaviors, intentions, thoughts yeah. in regard to our mental health. We are uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. It is the point there of the fog. Like, like we, we, we don't want to come out of the fog. We don't, we don't want to address uh, anything uncomfortable. So therefore we, we would rather just uh, imbibe in the fog than step out of it and and work against it actively and and i think i think bromden follows up the fog to, to your exact point of in the fog in the safety in the system it's not that you can't see what's what's obviously six feet ahead of you it's just that it's blurred and the the ambiguity as to what it is uh lets you not have to face it and so for me to push down insecurities of self-confidence and just remain in the fog lets me not create form to those issues of self-confidence Yeah. Uh, in my childhood, like I was trying to talk, say earlier. That's incredibly uncomfortable for me to talk about. Um, but to step out of the fog and create discomfort with the ways that I inevitably was part of the system having that beat into me over years and years and years. And then now as a 23 year old trying to undo that process yeah, uh, to deal with the roots of my insecurities is, is hard. Uh, yeah. But in, in that pain, there's a, there, there can be sources of health and joy, which is another comment that I wanted to make about McMurphy because now now we're kind of jumping towards the latter half of the book where they're discussing the hardship that they had faced and the conflict at hand. And there seems to be a steady uh, symbolism in characters laughing in the book. Yeah. Because when you think of a psychiatric ward and laughing, you think of almost lunacy. It, it's almost uh, eerie, right? Yeah. Uh, laughing in a psychiatric ward just that those words together just sounds kind of eerie and uh and mcmurphy discusses how there's no laughing when you are in the fog there's no laughing that he could hear but mcmurphy laughs boldly yeah uh, and and laughing at their discomfort and conflict and hardship is a thing that gives mcmurphy power which is something we talked about in yielding our humor as a sword uh, and the quote is uh, Bromden discussing McMurphy laughing at the height of hardship. He says, McMurphy won't let pain blot out the humor more than he'll let the humor blot out the pain. Yeah. And that really stuck with me as the, the pivotal quote of recovery. And you and I have to tiptoe the way that I think about it because I don't think that the quote is saying uh, to diminish the importance of pain. Yeah, or not laugh it off. Not laugh off the pain, or 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 even create uh, the guise of 
uh, lack of care about the pain. I think that wielding humor during pain can be a source of recovery, healing, and power for the individual. Yeah, uh, and, and this and this brings me back to to stand up comedians that I really think have yielded their humor amidst pain in a powerful way. Uh, I've, I've told you this before that I think one of the, one of the most impressive openings to a standup set was when Pete Davidson opened with a joke about his father dying in nine 11. And, uh, and it's just, it hits the audience over the head so hard because I mean you can't you can't, it's taboo it's taboo to laugh about um it's taboo yeah. to joke about yet he had that experience and through the process of comedy can reconcile with that relationship in some way despite our discomfort with it and equally with Dave Chappelle exactly exactly in sticks Which, and if stones you, if you yeah. haven't seen sticks and stones go watch sticks and stones I think it's I think it's just an absolute uh, symphony of of conflict. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very and, controversial because he's he's talking about he's the whole stand up is about controversial topics. It's not just one bit; it's the whole thing. Uh, the purposely. whole thing, <laughs> the whole thing is him finding finding humor to blot out pain, and and I I can see how that is controversial in a sense where. Uh where the comedian is flippant about the pain of others. And I, and I really just, I just don't think that comedians, uh, I don't think comedians are because they're, they're just joking. Um, yeah, but it's a really fine, it's a real fine line. It's a real fine line. Yeah. Um, well, and that and that that part about McMurphy laughing is is interesting because that's the that's the part of the book where uh, he he uh, assembles all of the the psych ward uh, patients and has this grand scheme to break out, and mm-hmm. but not for the sake of leaving, but more for the sake of uh, of like a respite from the fog where he. Uh, he carefully finds an escape route. They all get on a bus. They go to this dock and, and get on a boat and they just go fishing. <laughs> and it's just like, the, you know, the, the, the patients are uncomfortable. They're like, ah, like we shouldn't be out here. We'll get in trouble. And McMurphy's mm-hmm. just like, ah, just have fun for once. You know, like he's trying to get this point across of like, you know, let's just, let's have fun for a minute. Um, and stop worrying so much about this. And, uh, and that's when he's laughing the most is like in their the confusion of should I, should I be having fun right now or not? Mm. And, and so uh, the, a challenge that the book gave to me was spending time finding ways to laugh or search search for the laughter that can be found in my pain. Yeah. Uh, laughing alongside. Laughing alongside. Your careful introspection. Yes, that's a great way of saying it. Laughing alongside my careful introspection. Um, and and 
I think uh, I think that process is is what this uh, short allegory that we're going to talk about called Welcome to Holland is all about. Dakota, do you want to do you want to read that? Yeah, I'll read it. Um, so this is it's called Welcome to Holland, and it's by Emily Kingsley, who is uh, a she's a special needs activist. Um, her son has Down syndrome, and she and she's a an American writer who's spent some time. She's she's worked with Sesame Street. I, I know that's her her connection with with pop culture, but <laughs> which is so cool. She wrote this short story originally as an advocation for how, as a parent of of a child with special needs, do I what What's my perspective on life? Um, and and the mm. unex and being unexpecting of of a child with these uh, with these needs, and so so I'm just gonna read it. Um, I'm often asked to describe the experience of raising a child with a disability to try to help people who have not shared that unique experience to understand it, to imagine how it would feel. It's like this. When you're going to have a baby, it's like planning a fabulous vacation trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make your wonderful plans. The Colosseum, the Michelangelo, Michelangelo David, the gondolas in Venice. You may learn some handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. After months of eager anticipation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands. The stewardess comes in and says, Welcome to Holland. Holland, you say? What do you mean, Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All my life, I've dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in the flight plan. They've landed in Holland, and there you must stay. The important thing is that they haven't taken you to a horrible, disgusting, filthy place full of pestilence, famine, and disease. It's just a different place. So you must go out and buy new guidebooks, and you must learn a whole new language, and you will meet a whole new group of people you would have never met. It's just a different place. It's slower paced than Italy, less flashy than Italy, but after you've been there for a while and you catch your breath, you look around and you begin to notice that Holland has windmills and Holland has tulips. Holland even has Rembrandts. But everyone you know is busy coming and going from Italy and they're all bragging about what a wonderful time they had there. And for the rest of your life, you will say, yes, that's where I was supposed to go. That's what I had planned. And the pain of that will never, ever, ever, ever go away. Because the loss of that dream is a very, very significant loss. But if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special, the very lovely things about Holland. Hmm. And so right off the bat, I think it's important for us to say that we don't want to take away from the context of which this was written yeah yet we want to we want to say how powerful this narrative is as an allegory for everyone's mental health yeah and uh and and honestly anybody's narrative yeah um it it is just such such a powerful allegory that that can be used for recovery in general 
Yeah. So it's it's a direct analog to to mental health as well. I mean, yes. Italy yes. Italy is the is the normal life. You know, it's the quote okay. unquote normal. Yeah, yes. yeah. Like okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna live the the quote unquote normal life, but then when you start to wrestle with uh, you know cognitive cognitive distortions or uh, childhood trauma or whatever it may be going to counseling and and uh, as we were saying carefully introspecting uh, that is that is like going to Holland um, you you know you you don't start off life thinking oh I, I'm gonna have to go to Holland I'm gonna have to deal with trauma or go to counseling but alas you're you're in holland um do you protest that place by hating it uh do you just protest uh, like i hate that i have these feelings or this history or do you reorient your worldview to see the beauty that's in holland how do you how do you go to how do you address these things um and not uh spend your life lamenting it uh, but how do you lament it in a way of okay this is different lament how it's different but continue and persevere and say okay I actually see how this is this is a beautiful process this is a life-changing process and uh, I can address mental health without it being uh, scary or uh, or ugly and and I mean this story is there are layers to to what this all means, right? So if Italy is a normal life, then everyone everyone lives in Holland, regardless yeah. of where they think they live, right? Yeah. So and well, and that's a good point of the short story as well too, is that there will be the people who who think that they're in Italy, um, you know, the people who who think that they have the quote unquote normal life, who are constantly talking about. Oh, like I'm in Italy. I'm in Italy, and you know, oh, you're over in Holland, and 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 the, the other point side is of that, that point Holland's is, not a bad place. <laughs> exactly, and the other part of that is, regardless of whether you acknowledge being in Italy or being in Holland, we often see others as being yeah. in Italy and having normalcy and having yeah. better and having what we don't have, and and you can be in Italy about a lot of things and be in Holland about others. So for instance, I am really thankful for the opportunity thus far uh, in regard to mental illness uh, to, to, to feel like I've yeah. been in Italy. Yet when I really dig through m- myself i realize that there are aspects of my mental health that i just haven't faced yet and have yet to uncover and that process bring brings me to the reality that uh i i, I am in holland in terms of mm. jealousy um or in yeah. terms of, of of guilt um that that's just deep seated. And so and so while she uses Holland and Italy as symbols for her 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 parenting of a child with special needs, 
uh, the story is used in a book that we are also cooking through right now. The, the story is used um, in terms of learning that you have cancer or uh, having a having a pivotal geographical move yeah. in your lifetime or having having a parent pass away early um and so it can it can be it can be circumstantial and it can also be uh it can also be life yeah. lifelong right um and so you're right that the the process of bringing yourself back to the awareness that you're in Holland is mm-hmm. is uncomfortable but also but also the the journey of figuring yourself out and the joy of discovering the tulips is is what leads to yeah. recovery what's what's the challenge here i think the challenge is is reorienting your worldview and it's not it doesn't happen instantly i can't just always know yeah. that i'm in holland because i'm i'm blinded by because because it's not that I'm blinded. It's because I I enjoy being in the fog, yeah. to use both, both yeah. uh, both symbols there. Because I feel comfortable in the fog, I don't realize that sometimes I I choose to live in Italy over living in Holland, because there's safety. Yeah, we're inviting you to step out of the fog. That that's the challenge is is f- finding ways to step yeah. out of the fog, finding ways to acknowledge that you're in Holland. Uh, laugh your way through the pain of being in Holland and discover the tulips and the Rem- the Rembrandts. That's a great place to wrap. appreciate the opportunity to discuss One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Welcome to Holland. Thank you as well to our new candidates, Lily, Andrew, and Collins, who are officially accepted to become PhDs of company. And big thanks to you, our pupils, for hearing us to the end of the episode. We appreciate any feedback y'all have on the series as we go on. For now, we'll leave you with some things to remember. A good friend is like an old pair of headphones. They'll get all messed up if you put them in your pocket. Live life like a child, whimsical, adventurous, and unable to pay a mortgage. Be a flamingo in a flock of pigeons. Failure is just a ruliaf spelled backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Top Hat Town. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> All right, <laughs> you got to cut there. <laughs>